This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're celebrating Ernest Hemingway's birthday with an event from the archives. Nobel Prize-winning poet Derek Walcott gives us a new appreciation of Hemingway as a great and influential Caribbean writer, discussing Hemingway's influence on his writing and paying tribute to him with readings of his own poems. I'm going to do a kind of trial run of a couple of sentences, and I'd like to hear your complaints. Um, is this okay? Yes. All right. <clears throat> well, this will be the only time. Um, do you have any complaint about the projection at all? Am I clear? There is a force whose natural rage can smash the terracotta cliffs like crockery and mash up the archipelago into islands. He is the god of wind, and his Caribbean name is Hurukan. This is a poem to his power. Once branching light startles the hair of the coconuts, and on the villa's asphalt roofs, rain resonates like pebbles in a pan, and only the skirts of surf wash round the abandoned bandstand, and we hear the telephone cables hallooing like fingers tapped over an Indian's mouth. Once the zinc roofs begin wrenching their nails like freight uncreated with a crowbar, we remember you as the possible deity of the whistling marsh canes. We doubt that you were ever slain by the steel Castilian lances of a thousand horizons, deity of the yellow-skinned ones who thatched your temple with plantains. When the power station's blackout grows frightening as amnesia, and the luxury resorts revert to the spare tips of candles, and the swimming pools in their marsh light multiply with hysterical lilies like the beaks of fledglings uttering your name. When lightning fizzles out in the wireless, we can see and hear the streaming black locks of clouds flesh the gamboge of lightning and the epicanthic almost shape-eyed of the whirling cyclops runner through the cloud smoke, our ocean's marathon strider the only survivor of the massacred deities whose temples change like the clouds over Yucatan in the copper twilight over Ecuador. Runner who can grip the mare's tails of galloping cirrus, vaulting the dead conquistadors of the helmeted palms. You'd never reply to the name of the northern messenger whose zigzag trident pitchforks the oaks into straw, 
nor to the thunderous tambours of Shango. You rage till we get your name right, till the surf and the bent palms dance to your tune, even if at your entrance clouds plod the horizon like caparisoned camels and the wind begins to unwhirl like a burnous. You abhor all other parallels but your own hurukan. You scream like a man whose wife is dead, like a god who has lost his race. You yank the electric wires with wet hands. Then we think of a different name than the cute ones christened by radar. In the sludge that sways next day by the greased pearheads, where a rowboat still rocks in fear. And Florida now flares to your flashbulb, and the map of Texas rattles, and we lie awake in the dark by the dripping stelae of candles, our heads gigantified on the walls, and think of you still running with tendons, feathered with lightning, water warrior whom the chained trees strain to follow, havoc, reminder, ancestor, and when morning enters, pale as an insurance breaker, God. Here is Hemingway in a short story after the storm, entering the weather so that the white page itself froths with gulls, with clouds, and foam. The prose of a naturalist, but with colloquial vigor. Brother, that was some storm. I was the first boat out, and you never saw water like that. It was just as wide as a liar barrel, and coming from Eastern Harbor to Southwest Key, you couldn't recognize the shore. There was a big channel blown right out through the middle of the beach, trees and all blown out and a channel cut through, and all the water white as chalk and everything on it, branches and whole trees and dead birds, and all floating. Inside the keys were all the pelicans in the world and all kinds of birds flying. They must have gone inside there when they knew it was coming after the storm. Now, writing after, immediately after Hurricane Thomas, I ask, is the marina all right? Did the yachts and sailboats lift and shiver against their concrete docks? Are the car parks flooded? Are the tables in the restaurant where we ate nearly every dusk intact or in shambles after the hurricane? We were always lucky with hurricanes in St. Lucia. They usually swivel widely north towards Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Jamaica, while the Southern Caribbean was spared, except for some heavy rain and wind. Now I write in agonizing ignorance of how much damage has happened to my island. I knew that the town of Sofria has been badly hit, as they say. The banana crop has been widely, considerably leveled. There has been no drinking water for days. There have been deaths. Years ago, I showed Joseph Brodsky a new poem about a hurricane. He said it was good. There was only one thing wrong with it. What, I said. He said there was no death in it. Now there are 15 made by the fury of Thomas. What has gone? What has left? Even in their devastation, the hurricanes have beauty. Warned against being too near to glass while I was staying at a beach hotel in St. Lucia, I remember defying the warning and looking out through the wide glass pane and seeing the palms bending as low as grass in the horizontal rain. Beautiful, but fatal. Also beautiful, the tempestuous breakers 
drumming and crashing along the beach, the different shoreline that would be there tomorrow. Once in Jamaica after a hurricane, I saw a freighter parked on the road to Palisados. The irritations and expectations come after the storm. Blocked roads, water shortage, landslides. The island contrasts and shrinks after its disaster. Multiply this along the whole arc of the Caribbean, and each island has a memorial year and a nickname for the hurricane that hit it. Waves moving in instant garlands drench the causeway across from my house on Beckyon Point in St. Lucia. All their labor ends in heaps of exultation, in inaudible applause. The waves move in long sentences. The bay is lined like a phage. The sea's sibilance, its ceaselessness. I've entered the lined pages of certain masterpieces set in the Caribbean. Hart Crane's poems, a lot of Hemingway's fiction. To have and have not, the old man in the sea, islands in the stream. This from to have and have not. They came on across the night and it blew a big breeze from the northwest. When the sun was up, he sighted a tanker coming down the gulf and she stood up so high and white with the sun on her that cold air, it looked like, that in that cold air, it looked like tall buildings rising out of the sea. And he said to the nigger, where the hell are we? The nigger raised himself up to look. Ain't nothing like that the side of Miami. You know it damn well, we ain't been carried up to no Miami. How to read this now? To explain that this was how they spoke about black people in those days 50 years ago will not do. The speaker is not penitential. To pretend that their attitude has changed is potential farce. Both Hemingway and Mark Twain, creators of Nigger Jim, enjoy the rhythm of the world as much as any redneck, but without contempt. Now you know damn well we ain't being carried up to no Miami, he told the nigger. He told the nigger. I let the phrase enter me, the scar may still be there. It was habit and not venom. It was too casual, even affection, affectionate. It elevated the nigger into something approaching friendship, but not quite. If I were the Jew writer Robert Cohn in The Sun Also Rises, I would have resented the way I was treated. But as a black island fisherman, it was hardly worth the effort. It was not crass or contemptible. You felt an innate dignity in the nigger that was superior to Harry Morgan and to Hemingway, Harry Morgan's creator. There was respect, even envy in the exchange. At that instant, both himself and his creation are fools, belittled by a superiority they take for granted. Harry Morgan, the fool, and Ernest Hemingway, his creator, the bigger fool. Why should I give a fuck if Morgan was Hemingway, that he got shot to death in his boat in the mangroves? Were there two levels to bravery, one for Morgan and a lesser one for the nigger? Shouldn't I have stopped reading and flung the book aside? I lived among niggers. It could have been not me on that boat, but I was more Harry Morgan than Wesley if that was the nigger's name. His name might have been Obama. Forgivable, understandable, nor just lacking the immense oceanic compassion of a truly great writer. 
not an ocean, uh, not truly perennial, but a lake, a provincial pond, a rivulet, a gutter. The brown cliffs slide past the churning boughs of the catamaran, the villages holding on to their names as we plunge along the sand and coast of St. Lucia, not until we slowly round the coming promontory into another bay, and the elation of the weather, the slap of salt wind on the face, the thrumming engine under the foot, and the sudden startling saw of a frigate bird, frigate bird rustle like a page of Hemingway, the nouns wet and fragrant and salty. I've always shared his prose with the spirit of the Caribbean. Like compressed monosyllables, almost in pigeon, conversations punctuated, paragraphed by sunlight, by glare in Havana, in Miami, in Bimini. Here is a salty, reeking mangrove where a mortally wounded Harry Morgan lies rocked by his boat, his punishing cradle. You know that smell. It has tree crabs in it, snails and frogs, a vegetal mulch that stinks of mortality. Across the harbor of Castries, the capital of St. Lucia, there was a gamboge-colored tower, part of a fort, surrounded by trees and with an orange or rust-red roof that looked like Lickstack, Cezanne's favorite landscape, and also like a hill in Italy. And the trees, the cube of the fort, the indigo blue of the sea at the tower's base, when they were looked at syllabically, when they were conjugated as prose, had the stasis of a paragraph in Hemingway. That composition, his syntactical scansion, was built stroke by stroke, syllable next to syllable, syllable as my model, so that my palette to this day consists of slate blue, orange, and the modulations of green. Below that gamboge wall like a battlement, my first true love lived, solid in the magical light of a tropical dusk, a light that was from another country, as my love herself seemed to come from another country, perhaps Italy. The tower, the yellow wall, the processional wave of the duck and its boathouse, duck and its boathouse, at a distance that was fabulous, a medieval fragment. The light had a simplicity that stayed in the descriptions of Hemingway, not surprising because of the medieval design of his stories, his young heroic knight often maimed or wounded, and his doomed maidens. The plots of the novels are as emblematic as legends. The knight, the doomed princess, the dragonish war. The rhythm of the narrative was often that of the fairy tale and the nursery rhyme. In his early work in In Our Time, Hemingway writes, the king was working in the garden. He seemed very glad to see me. We walked through the garden, this is the queen, he said. She was clipping a rose bush. Oh, how do you do, she said. We sat down at a table under a big tree, and the king ordered whiskey and soda. We have good whiskey anyway, he said. The revolutionary committee, he told, would not let him go outside to palace grounds. Plasteras is a very good man, I believe, he said, but frightfully difficult. I think he did right, though, shooting those chaps. 
If Kerensky had shot a few men, things might have been altogether different. Of course, the great thing in this sort of affair is not to be shot oneself. He was very jolly. He talked for, we talked for a long time. Like all Greeks, he wanted to go to America. Here at sunrise on the island 50 years ago, I imagine the thoughts of my first love, Anna, awaking. When the oil green water flows but doesn't catch, only it's burnished, something wakes me early, draws me out breezily to the pebbly shelf of shallows where the water chuckles and the ribbed boats sleep like children buoyed on their creases. I have nothing to do. The burnished kettle is already polished to see my own blush burn. And the last thing the breeze needs is my exhilaration. I shall make coffee. The light like a fierce dawn will singe the downy edges of my hair. And the heat will plate my forehead till it shines. Its sweat will share the excitement of my cunning. Mother, I am in love. Harbor, I am waking. I know the pain in your budding nippled limes. I know why your limbs shake windless pliant trees. I shall grow gray in this light. The first flush will pass. But there will always be morning, and I shall have this fever awaken me. Whoever I lie to, lying close to, sleeping like a ribbed boat in the last shallows of night. Let's go for a little walk, she said one afternoon. I'm in a walking mood. Near the lagoon, dark water's lens had made the trees one wood, arranged to frame this pair whose pace unknowingly measured loss. Each face was set towards its character. Where they now stood, others before had stood. The same lens held them, the repeated wood. Then there grew on each one the self-delighting, self-transfiguring stone stare of the demigod. Stunned by their images, they strolled on, content that the black film of water kept the print of their locked images when they passed on. And which of them in time would be betrayed was never questioned by that poetry which breathed within the evening naturally, but by the noble treachery of art that looks for fear when it is least afraid, that coldly takes the pulse beat of the heart in happiness, that praises the need to die to the bright candor of the evening sky that preferred love to immortality. So every step increased that subtlety which hoped that their two bodies could be made one body of immortal metaphor. The hand she held already had betrayed them both by its longing for describing her. Here is Anna recently, after a visit, 60 years after. In my wheelchair in the Virgin Lounge at Viewfort, I saw sitting in her own wheelchair, her beauty hunched like a crumpled flower, the one whom I thought as the fire of my young life would do her duty to be golden and beautiful and young forever even as I aged. She was treble-chinned, old. A devastating smile was netted, netted in wrinkles, but I felt the fever briefly returning as we sat there, crippled, 
bearing time and the life of general pleasantries. Small waves still break against the small stone pier where a boatman left me in the orange piece of dusk a half century ago. Maybe happier being erect, she like a deer in her shyness, I stalking an impossible consummation. Those who knew us knew we would never be together, at least not walking with the silent knives from the intercom went through me. Over the years as I traveled, I found myself confirming cities and places that I had read in Hemingway. Miami, Venice, Key West, Bimini, Madrid, Pamplona, doing things that were in the book, such as eating lamb ribs barbecued and pine branches in an open place with a noise and a river like a dam. Not in the spirit of literary pilgrimage, but every city authenticated his prose. Here is Barcelona, which I came to late, its roofs and streets rhyming with its name. There was a roar outside like a rocket arching over the roofs this morning. Then under the black iron balconies, a brass band marching, detonated for some saint or labor union, defending Catalonia with civic thunder. You smiled down at them with their banners and sashes, but all you did in Barcelona was cough, like one of those veterans with mournful mustaches left over from the Civil War. That is not enough for such a great city, but you take time in portions, one cough at a time, your personal thunder that turns compassionate heads. What I had waited for was the name to be a banner over every street, crucifixions and velvets, candles and purple crepe, for the crowd in the plaza to leap to its feet at the flourish and trembling stasis of the matador's cape. I could never join in the parade. I can't walk fast, such as time's ordinance, lungs rattle, eyes that run. Now Barcelona is part of my past. By now Hemingway's reputation was that of a writer in exile, the setting of most of his fiction had been in Europe, in Spain, and Italy. Now he showed that he could write about a country to which his prose belonged. To have and have not was political and leftist. His piratical hero was a loner and apart from the rich in the marinas of Key West and Miami. Henry Morgan, his parallel in another aspect of the book, was Richard Gordon, also a writer the short, happy life of Francis McCumber, who is now morally impotent despite his big game hunting. Richard Gordon's wife abuses him in the same terms as his wife does McCumber. The rich in their yachts and the maritime and in the marinas rock in their wealth. Richard Gordon's wife says to him, Richard Gordon says, you're married to me. Not really, not in the church. You wouldn't marry me in the church and it broke my poor mother's heart, as you well know. I was so sentimental about you. I'd break anyone's heart for you. My, I was a damn fool. I broke my own heart too. It's broken and gone. Everything I believed in and everything I cared about I left for you because you were so wonderful and you loved me so much that love was all that mattered. 
Love was the greatest thing, wasn't it? Love was what we had that no one else had or could ever have. And you were a genius and I was your whole life. I was your partner and your little black flower, slop. Love is just another dirty lie. Love is ever pills to make me come around because you were afraid to have a baby. Love is canine and canine and canine until I'm deaf with it. Love is that dirty aborting horror that you took me to. Love is my insides all messed up. It's half catheters and half whirling douche. I know about love. Love always hangs behind the bathroom door. It smells like Lysol. To hell with love. Love is you making me happy and then going off to sleep with your mouth open while I lie awake all night afraid to say my prayers even because I know I have no right to anymore. Love is all the dirty little tricks you taught me that you probably got out of some book. All right, I'm through with you, and I'm through with love. Your kind of pick-nose love. You writer, you writer who has given us such joy. And God, what a good one to record this quarrel so exactly. Although it is more than a quarrel, despite her protests, its tone having reached its peak still has a possibility of reconciliation. But its fury, its intimacy, is like opening the page of a book of an open door and coming upon a scene so horrific in its marsh, mar marital savagery that we want to shut the door quickly and hurry away. There are the times when Hemingway is merciless with himself, when he ridicules his own pomposity and his selfishness, where having built for himself a comfortable haven in Finca Vigia in Havana, he confesses to an evasion of responsibility to the poor and diseased neighbors of the paradise of ghettos around him. His shield is liquor. Alcohol, red striped bear, fuel the discussion that we three writers one night in Jamaica were having in my small house near the university in the 1950s. John Hearn, the novelist, Slade Hopkinson, actor and poet, and me. We were planning a visit to Cuba to present ourselves to Hemingway, a surprise tribute from three Caribbean writers. We would go to the Finca Vigia outside Havana and tell Hemingway how much we were indebted to him, and we were certain that he would write us, invite us in to have some drinks. We were absolutely certain of it. This without money for airplane tickets, taxi, or hotels, because he was someone whose work made us grateful and happy, because he knew what it all looked like, the mountains after rain, the rain that traveled the horizon in slow-moving veils, the sight of leaping martin, marlin, dolphins, racing, all those things that brought us happiness with his prose, the height of frigates floating above the perennial Caribbean Sea. Here now, in death in the afternoon, the days of early sharpening pencils, ritualistically, ritualistically, to induce the trance that produces poetry afterwards. If you could make the yellow flames of candles in the sun that shines on steel and bayonets freshly oiled, and yellow patent leather belts of those who guard the host, or hunt in pairs through scrub oak in the mountains, for the ones who fell into the trap at Deva. 
It was bad, a long way to come from the Café Raton to be garroted in a drafty room with consolation of the church at order of the state, acquitted once and held until the Captain General of Burgos reversed the fighting of the court. And in the same town where Loyola got his wound that made him think, the bravest of those who were betrayed that year dove from the balcony onto the paving of the court head first because he had sworn they would not kill him. His mother tried to make him promise not to take his life because she worried most about his soul. But he dove well and cleanly with his hands tied while they walked with him praying. If I could make him, make a bishop, make Candido Tievas and Turon, make clouds come fast and shadows moving over wheat and the small, careful stepping horses, the smell of olive oil, the food, the feel of leather, rope sole shoes, the loops of twisted garlic, earthen pots, saddlebags carried across the shoulder, wineskin, the, pitch, the pitchforks made of natural wood. The tines were branches, the early morning smells, the cold mountain nights and long hot days of summer with always trees and shade under the trees. Then you would have had a little of Navarra, but it's not in this book. And finally, in tribute to Hemingway and home, the simplicity of St. Lucia. No opera, no gilded columns, no wine-dark seats, no Penelope scouring the stalls with delicate glasses, no practiced ecstasy from the tireless tenor, no sweets and wine at no interval, no altos, no basses and violins sobbing as one, no opera house, no museum, no actual theater, no civic center, and what else? Only the huge doors of the clouds with a setting disk through which we leave and enter. Only the deafening parks with their jumping crowds and the thudding speakers. Only the government buildings down by the wharf and another cruise ship big as the capital, all blue gas, glass and cement. No masterpieces in huge frames to worship on such banalities has life been spent in brightness. And yet there are days when every street corner rounds itself into a sunlit surprise, a painting or phrase. Canoes drawn up by the market, the harbors blue, the barracks, so much to do still. All of it praise. Thank you. Thank you very much, Derek Walcott. Derek Walcott has agreed to take a few very good questions from the audience. Questions can be asked, as you know, in about 52 seconds. So if you would be willing to come up to the mic and ask our poet laureate, Nobel Prize winner a question, he would be delighted to answer. This audience is not particularly well known for its shyness. Thank you so much for speaking. Okay, um, put the mic did, up. Talk into it? Yeah. Did, um, did you meet with Hemingway? 
Sorry? When you went to see Hemingway, did you meet with him? Did we go? Yeah. No. We didn't have the money. <laughs> I was wondering. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. That's a spirit. Uh, what technical aspects of Hemingway's writing, if any, most appealed to you? What technical aspects of his writing, Hemingway's writing, most appeal to you um, and maybe most inspire you in a, in a poetic way? There's supposed to be a mystery, but there isn't. The mystery is, as he himself has described it, the mystery is hard work and concentrated work. Um, what Hemingway writes is very simple prose, but the mystery is in the simplicity. The mystery is, why is it that another sentence by someone else describing something very familiar does not have an aura or an echo? It's not journalism. It's not just description. It's not just good prose. There is something incantatory, almost sacred, in the kind of effect he gets out of his prose, ordinary, um, ordinary words. I think that there is a vibration that enters the prose that is genuine, that is something, you may be amused by this, but it's very close to prayer. It's very close to ritual, and it's very close to veneration of language, word by word, that creates that echo that is Hemingway's style. Everybody can write that kind of simple prose. All journalism does that. But a journalistic sentence by a very good writer of journalism does not come up to the vibration that happens on the aura that happens in Hemingway's descriptive prose. And I think it came from how he ritualized himself into making that happen when he was a younger writer. So I think it's the feel of the prose that I admire. Uh, this may be a similar, a, a related question. Uh, you may have partially answered it. Uh, you referred to John Hearn and yourself in the 1950s. I did what? You referred, you referred to uh, John Hearn and yourself in the 1950s. And of course, many people date the flourishing of West Indian or Caribbean literature to the post-war period. Um, so I would be curious to hear a little bit more, if you would, about what Hemingway meant to a person like John Hearn and to yourself. And I believe you mentioned a third person, but I, was there a third person that was there a third person that you were going to go to meet uh, Hemingway in Cuba with? Hearn yourself? I think it was close to idolatry. Um, that this, this thing that happens in reading Hemingway, this enchantment that happens, uh, is something that we all shared. John was a great devotee, devotee of Hemingway. Um, you can see that from his style. But more than style, uh, I think Hemingway provided a kind of code of conduct that went with the prose. Um, and that's why I think it's, you know, almost religious. It's a little bit um, off topic, but 
with the loss of Caribbean culture nowadays kind of being overtaken by popular American consumerist culture, do you think there's a future for Caribbean art, um, especially through poetry? Do I think there's a future for what? For Caribbean art, for a distinctive Caribbean voice to exist. Caribbean art? Yes. Yes, sure. Um, I think anybody who lets themselves really be threatened by, you know, America kind of encourages it himself or herself. Um, there's a kind of attraction in defiance that is dangerous as well. I think the present condition of Caribbean literature is extremely strong. We have very good young writers um, in their 40s or 30s uh, from different islands with different accents and different experiences. Can you name some names? Pardon me? Can you name some names? Uh, Lorna Goodison, um, Kaz Phillips. A lot of them are my friends, so I can't mention all of them. Put it there. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'd like to know if uh, you consider Trinidad and Tobago your uh, second home. Is there a love affair with Trinidad and Tobago or some sort of fascination with it? With what? Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah. Do you consider it your second home? Where do I consider my present home? Second home. Second home. Um. I, don't, I don't think I'm first or second home. Um. I mean, I live in St. Lucia, but my daughter, there's one daughter lives in, Saint, in Trinidad, and that's as much home to me <coughs> as my own home. <coughs> there are differences in the islands of conduct, of sociology, and so on, but they're basically the same, and the experience is the same. There's a very unifying sense of the Caribbean when you go up the islands. Thank you. Okay. Hello, this is slightly off the topic, but um, put it up. Put the mic up. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, has being poet laureate affected you as a poet? Has being poet laureate how has that affected um, you as the poet? Poet laureate. Has changed the way you you sort of see writing? I'm not a poet laureate. That's not what I am. No, has has uh, becoming a, a Nobel Prize affected your poetry? Well, in one way, it's affected my life. That's one of the reasons why I'm here. If I, I think if I hadn't won the Nobel Prize, they wouldn't have invited me. I don't know. <laughs> I think you might. Well, um... It hasn't really, it hasn't affected my way of life in any particular difference. Um, I think it's made me more responsible, in a way, as a writer, to deliver your best, right? And to think of an audience that is quite immense. Not that you write for them, but the consequence of winning the prize results in a very wide, much wider readership. Um, as I've often said, I look at the photograph that the Nobel Committee issues of all its winners, 
and I find my face there and I feel like hiding. So that's how it's affected me. Mr. Walker, you read a lot about Haiti. What does Haiti mean to you? And you read a lot about Haiti, Uncle stuff and all that. What does Haiti mean to you? And what do you think Haiti should mean to your readers? I've never been to Haiti, um, which is regrettable. But I have been tormented, fascinated by the anguish of Haiti and the amount that it has to suffer. Uh, nothing, no, no sooner than one affliction ends, another one arrives. You know, there's something in the quality of the strength of the Haitian people, though. I think that's there, um, and I think that the Haitian Revolution is one of the most dramatic and consequential events, a long event that happened in the Caribbean, and has remained an example for leaders in the Caribbean. Um, and the drama of it is phenomenal. The epic scale of it and the heroes of it or the villains of it, whether it's Dessalines or Christophe or Pétion or whoever. That, um, I have often tried to do a film about Haiti. That should come someday because it really deserves, makes a terrific Western. Thank you. Right. Uh, I would like to ask, uh, through what uh, medium did you first encounter the work of Hemingway? Was it in book form, or was it, did you encounter his stories in Esquire, or Collier's, or periodicals, or more predominantly in books? Book form, books. Yeah. And were they available uh, widely in St. Lucia? Yeah, um, there were standard commercial publications. Um, I've said this before that sometimes, if you're poor and you have a, you know, you tend to have a better library if you're poor than if you're wealthy and you buy trash. That seems to me not a bad note on which to end. We have the pleasure of having 192 books here, an independent bookstore. As you know, I, I very much prize independent bookstores. I um, hope Derek Walcott will sign some of his books. And before doing so, I would like to thank him very warmly from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.